You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori and one of the co-founders there. Today I have with me Andy Hatch, owner and cheesemaker at Uplands Cheese Company. You may have had their cheese from Whole Foods like Pleasant Ridge Reserve and Rush Creek Reserve. Hey, Andy. Hey, Russ. Hey, I had to refresh myself on your cheese. I thought we were going to do the show a couple of months ago, so I had to eat some cheese. And then now that we've scheduled it for now, past the holiday rush, I had to go get some more cheese. So some part of your cheese income is derived from me. I, yeah, we saw a bump in Seattle and wondered. Um, <laughs> that was me. Yeah, both of them are are great. Liz Thorpe, who was on, on the show recently talking about cheese generally and climate change, a big fan of your work from from what I could tell and connected us. And she says nice things about your cheese in, in her book too. Have you ever seen that? Her book of cheese? Uh, she has a couple. I've got them up on the bookshelf. She knows what she's talking about. I, I would have said that even before she paid us compliments. But <laughs> yeah, she's she's a leading light. Um, in our industry and, and has an interesting perspective now because, you know, she doesn't run a day-to-day business like she used to. So I think she's, you know, above the fray, a little bit of commerce and she's a good one to go to for, uh, you know, perspective on industry trends and stuff like that. Cause she can sort of float around and dip in about. Yeah. And you're, you're on the other hand, quite busy, you know, knee deep in way. And so you can't. Yes. Yeah. I get the, this is the time of year where I get big picturey. You know, uh-huh. a month ago, everything was six inches from my nose, shipping holiday orders and that kind of thing. But we slow way down in the winter. So uh, conversations like this are kind of a natural part of our cycle in, in the winter. And then we get busy again in the spring, deal with the day to day. For now, zooming out, that's what we look forward to really this time of year. I was wondering to what degree people who don't know much about cheese making or dairy generally uh, think about the seasonality of cheese. Even the fact that you just said now is a slow season, you would have thought with industrial scale cheese making, uh, seasons no longer matter. But it seems like from what I can tell from eating your cheeses, which are both delicious that I've had, and also reading your website, it seems like seasonality is actually something that you may perceive as being lost to cheesemaking broadly and are trying to recover. Is that correct? Uh, yes, largely that's true. Uh, certainly with, you know, scaled up cheesemaking and most of the cheesemaking in this country, cows are milked year round, cheeses are made year round, and you know, to optimize efficiency and achieve scale, those that's the way you do it. Hmm. We run counter to that trend for for a couple of reasons. You know, one of them is lifestyle, but which is a little indulgent. But also, I think <laughs> what does that mean? Like you want well, vacation time or what? Pay, you know, we pay to take the winter off. Hmm. We stop milking our cows for a couple of months. Stop making cheese. Uh, we're still feeding cows and, mm. you know, that, that costs money. And now we're not wealthy enough that we can just afford to burn through cash all winter. It, we've had to shape the business to, to make it work financially. We didn't write the book. It's an old model. You, uh, you know, you calve your cows in the spring when pasture comes up and that's the cheap time to make milk. 
they're feeding on pasture spring, summer, fall. So we harvest all that grass with our cows, turn it into cheese, bank that cheese away in the cheese caves to age for a year. And then when, when milk production gets expensive in the winter, we take a pass on it, shrink everything down, shrink our costs, uh, hibernate. And, and we've got, you know, the season's worth of cheese in the caves appreciating, you know, getting more flavorful, becoming more valuable. And we're able to sell that year round and generate, you know, we're not getting rich, but family supporting income. So, I mean, there are trade-offs, obviously. We work seven days a week, you know, April through November. And so you, you pay for it. You work really hard and then live off the, you know, the fruits of that labor through the winter months. So economically, you know, you've got to make it work. Lifestyle-wise, you've got to be able to absorb the intense months in order to have the quiet months. And mm -hmm. then I think the third dimension is the cheese itself is, I think we're trying to make cheeses that are unique to our farm. And the best way to do that is to make cheeses that, that nobody else could make. And so making a certain type of cheese only during a certain type of year from your own herd of cows is always going to be more reflective of, you know, the cows and the farm, their diet that time of year. It's going to be more unique rather than say, you know, buying milk from a bunch of different farms, making the same cheese year round, those kinds of systems homogenize and scale, but they don't create you know, the kind of distinctive character that we're after. Is that sort of the difference between getting your cheese from the deli case versus the cheese kiosk or a specialty store or most of the specialty cheeses vertically integrated in that way? No, it doesn't have to be. I mean, there's some grocery hmm. stores with really interesting cheese you know, especially these days, you've got some good ones in Seattle, PCC, Metro Market, Whole Foods. Those are bigger. Those are chains of stores, but they still got some rare seasonal. Oh, yeah. I know. love their cheesecake. I meant more like the uh, once they're slicing off of a big block next to oh, the board yeah. head. Is that the, is that the split or not really? Okay. Is that yeah, that's that's the other side of the divide. And huh. um, we've got a lot of that in Wisconsin, obviously. Yeah. Big scaled up production, and I—I am not claiming that our way of doing it is is better. Those businesses are the backbone of our whole economy. They support a lot of cows, support a lot of acres, support a lot of families. A lot of those factories will make more in a day than we make in a year. Wow! So it's it's just a different game altogether. Um, and if I were running a business that size, I would be homogenized and, you know, scaled up and efficient and year round too. That's just the, you know, I think the way you play that game. So your interest in cheese, maybe it's fair to say comes from wanting to make something yeah, unique to your land, unique to your cow, something that couldn't be done elsewhere. That sounds like a big risk and a challenge too. And the homogenized enormous operation in some ways seems simpler and less risky than something so boutique in orientation. Is that is that even a, the right way to frame this? I guess, yeah, probably. I mean, um, those businesses I, you know, have to take risk in terms of borrowing money and, you know, mm -hmm. they have some of those same problems, but I think it's, it's less interesting to a guy like me. I like 
you know, tinkering. I like nuance. I like figuring out those kinds of problems. And I mean, a, a farm like this is just nonstop full of those kinds of problems. You're dealing with weather, all the farming side of it, and, you know, making cheese with raw milk and a natural rind, constant uh, learning, experimenting. That's what turns me on. I, I, um, I, I mean, I also think it makes really interesting, delicious cheese, and that's important just yeah. to make the work meaningful. But yeah, it's, it is risky. You know, we work all summer, put away all that cheese and it better be good. <laughs> oh yeah, God, that's scary. It's next, next year's income, but uh, sure. Winemakers do the same thing. And yeah, maybe you should be a you know seasonal podcaster, just bank up a year's worth of them. Well, yeah, the shows during the holidays are more expensive, of course, because you have to pull me away from my family and doing nothing. <laughs> so I, I get hazard pay during that time. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should experiment. I'll pitch that next to podcast. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking maybe since we're talking about the taste of the cheese, you could help guide me a little bit. I have Liz's description of Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I also had, I think I ate an entire wheel of the Rush Creek Reserve too, but that was a, a little yes. earlier. Yeah. a little more distant in my palate's memory at this point. We should talk about that one too. But the term, this might expose me as a cheese neophyte, but the term that Liz uses that really stands out to me is fudgy. This is probably the fudgiest cheese I've had. And that might be, maybe you'll, you'll bristle against that. You but, call my cheese fudgy, man? What? Yes. <laughs> is that like, uh, Liz was saying like everyone's going for like butterscotchy flavors now. And like that sort of thing is in some ways become an industry standard, but like this type of this like texture, the way it feels against my teeth, it does remind me of, it's like the closest cheese I've had to fudge. Yeah. Is that, is that, no, is we, that no, that's, that's legit. Yeah. It's legit. Here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you, I you like that term there. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you could say toothsome, but that's a bit much for a Midwesterner. You know, the texture, it's a, it's a description of texture, right? And yeah. I'd like for Pleasant Ridge to be able, you could sort of smush it between your tongue and the roof of your mouth, a creamy taste. And, you know, that I think combined with the cheese should be savory, right? And, and, and with an acid to kind of make your mouth water. And so you have this mouth-watering, fudgy, rich paste that's you know, kind of what we're after and those the savory flavors kind of chicken broth meat so you know liz's point about a lot of modern american cheese trending towards butterscotch is just trending towards sweetness and that's really i think no different than most of the rest of our food system it's cheeses fat fatty salty and sweet that for a lot of people ticks, you know, the boxes and you can um, kind of fake sweetness in cheese by, uh, you know, added uh, starter cultures, bacteria that you'd add to milk during cheese making to kind of generate those sweet flavors. These kind of rich umami savory flavors you'd find in, in a cheese like Pleasant Ridge and other aged raw milk cheeses, you can't really fake in the same way. And so I think that makes them a little bit more unusual, especially in, in the landscape of American cheese. So it, it, Pleasant Ridge Reserve, the cheese you're eating and talking about, is our own recipe. We gave it our own name. It's, our farm is up on Pleasant Ridge. That's what we named it after. But it's our interpretation of a 
what you call an alpine style cheese. So classic examples of that are Gruyere, Comte, Appenzeller, Beaufort, cheeses that came out of the French and Swiss Alps. So it's an original cheese, but it's made very much in that tradition. But the best versions of those cheeses from, from France and Switzerland, from the Alps, are aged raw milk cheeses from cows on summer mountain pastures. And so they are always going to taste like the place they came from. Our cheese should always taste like the place it came from. And that really is where I talked about being somebody who gets uh, into nuance and variability. That's what's exciting about cheeses like this, I think, is they taste like place and, um, you know, they change over time, season to season. It's interesting. It, I, I think it's, you know, in, enjoyable as a consumer, as a producer to deal with something like that. I don't think I'm somebody who celebrates variability for variability's sake, but when you're going after flavor complexity and, and a taste of place, the variability is, just comes along with it, I think. It's interesting to to note your influence with uh, Alpine cheeses because those that I associate, and maybe this is unfair, but with extreme seasonality of you're living in these mountain valleys. And then as soon as it's clear up there, the cows go up and they're eating the, <laughs> the only, the only flower I could think of that might grow up there is Edelweiss, which uh, that's like the only thing I could even, they're eating the obscure mountain herbs that come out for a short time before the snow covers them up. And then they come back down and that's peasant food for the winter. And that that's like the seasonality of cheese. And that's something that you're trying to even bring back, even at personal familial cost even though it sounds like you probably need, need and deserve a break during that time too. Yeah. That's a spectacular system they have. And that's, they've been doing it for a thousand years. I am in awe of what they do in the Alps and it's not, I mean, it, modernity has not spared them either. Hmm. They have a harder time finding young cheesemakers to go up into the mountains for the summer. They're facing all the same labor issues we are here and and people who want to you know rather swipe at a phone than you know make a vat of cheese but they created the model it's it's really special what they do there and we're obviously not on an alp but it's the same mentality harvesting you know summer pasture and distilling it into that flavor into cheese how much of an influence does the rawness have I think both of the cheeses named are, are raw cheeses, right? Yeah, yeah. Both both of our cheeses are made with raw milk. It's an enormous influence. Yeah. Why why do you do it? Imagine someone doesn't know anything about it. Why wouldn't you pasteurize? <laughs> to make cheese with more flavor. Yeah. And more distinctive flavor. So cheese basically is a clump of fat and protein. And as a, a cheese ages, anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of years, as it ages. Those fats and proteins are metabolized and become aroma and flavor. Well, what metabolizes them? B uh, bacteria. And in the case of, of pasteurized cheese, the bacteria present to work on those fats and proteins and create flavor, th those bacteria are introduced by a you know commercial starter, like a you know, a cake mix or a spice mix into a pot of soup. So you bring the milk in, you pasteurize it, kill all the living bacteria, add certain strains of predictable bacteria and generate a cheese that's going to taste predictable. 
By contrast, uh, raw milk, unpasteurized milk, you know, arrives to the cheesemaker with a whole array of native bacteria and a far greater diversity than a cheesemaker could introduce with, with commercial culture. And so the, far, the greater diversity of bacteria that you start with translates to a greater flavor complexity in, in the finished cheese. You simply have more tools in the toolbox, more types of bacteria that are going to metabolize fats and proteins in different ways, each in their own way, to create more and different types of flavor and aroma. So that was a long-winded way of saying, you know, more flavor complexity. So why doesn't everybody do it? Well, you need to have confidence that the bacteria in your raw milk is flavorful and uh, doesn't present food safety issues. And the best way to do that is to control the cows or the goats or the sheep to have control over the quality of that milk. And so in our case, we only make cheese out of milk from our own cows. We have control and confidence in the quality of that milk. It doesn't make us better than another cheesemaker who pasteurizes his milk. And if we were buying milk from multiple different farms, the way most cheesemakers do, I would probably pasteurize it too. It's not like a moral crusade. It's just a way to make more interesting cheese. And if, if you if you can do it, if your circumstances are right, you've got the milk that can do it, it makes better cheese. What would the Pleasant Ridge Reserve taste like if you had pasteurized it and introduced uh, bacterial cultures? Yeah, great question. Subdued. I think we could still, we'd still find a way to make it delicious, but I think it would um, it'd probably be more consistent. You'd see less variability batch to batch, season to season. But I, I think you'd see um, sand off the the edges of what makes it really interesting. But of course, you know we can. There are other cheeses made in this style with pasteurized milk that are uh, that are are delicious. I don't think you can't make delicious cheese with pasteurized milk. But yeah, I, I was saying before, and, and I know it sounds just kind of like brochure copy, but you know our aim is to make cheese that tastes like our farm. That really is our competitive strategy in the market. If we were going to pasteurize our milk and make another generic version of what everybody else makes, cheddar, Jack, Colby, Gruyere, you know, now we're out there competing with everybody else for, you know, on price, marketing budget, things like that. Better for small producers like us to make something that nobody else could make, you know, be a category of one. Well, how do you make something that nobody else can make? You use raw milk from your own cows when they're eating your own pasture. That's the business strategy behind it is to do something that nobody else can copy. Yeah. I think if you were trying to compete with an enormous cheese manufacturer of a more generic cheese, I think you'd have to get big or get out as the farming expression goes. I'd have to shave my beard and go on the road and bang the sales drum and Talk to like supermarket buyers and <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's why my cheese is four tenths of a penny cheaper than what you're getting from over here and blah blah blah. No, I find it to be the cheese makes me think. And one element of it too that I like that you singled out is the presence of acid too. Because typically fat and acid don't go together in the natural world, as far as I know. But mm-hmm. cheese does. Cheese has mm-hmm. that. I feel like it's a very 
balanced thing all together. And it's very Moorish too. I like keep I keep wanting to like I tested a lot of cheeses for Liz's. Oh yeah. Yours were the ones that made me among the ones that made me the happiest. And I have a hard time palette wise explaining exactly why that is. She did mention in there that she has flavors of red fruit and papaya up front, followed by chicken stock. I guess you did mention the chicken stock. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel like a novice that I'm not getting the fruitiness to it. Do you, do you detect a lot of fruitiness in there too? Well, I mentioned, you know, this variability that's inherent huh. with raw milk cheese, particularly aged raw milk cheese. Think of it the same way you think of different vintages of, of wine hmm. coming from a, a producer that, you know, has kind of minimal intervention. So sometimes Pleasant Ridge trends more towards sweetness and other times, you know, more towards savoriness. Our model, going herd of cows on rotationally grazed pasture, unpasteurized milk, leaves us open to that, that variability. And so it may be that the, the cheese in front of you now have, just happens to be a more savory batch, not quite as sweet. The real magic, I mean, when, when you've land on a really special batch of Pleasant Ridge or of Gruyere, you know, that interplay between savory, sweet, and acid. And I mean, that's the real magic. When you have a good batch. That's real complexity. And um, Hmm. not every batch finds it. When you have a batch like that for the Pleasant Ridge Reserve, does it become the Pleasant Ridge Reserve Reserve? Is that a dumb joke? No, but we get excited about it. We're just now starting to taste the 2022s, the stuff we made, you know, May starting in May. And yeah, it's always a, it's a, like a discussion here. You find one that is like special. Like you, you'll find a dozen, two, there are 20 that are like specials. Like, well, do you sell them or you just, you, sometimes we just hold on to them because we want to watch them age and change. And it's exciting. It's fun to, stay with them for a while longer and then we have certain customers who want to select their own batch wow of these curious guy like you you would enjoy that kind of exercise they'll either come out to our farm or sometimes we'll send them pieces so next time we do a podcast together we'd send you a piece each from like eight different batches and it could be you know scattered throughout the summer a couple of june batches july august they're all going to taste slightly different and you pick your favorite one. And if you were, you know, De Laurenti or some a store in, in Seattle, we would put your name on that batch and, and only sell it to you. Wow. That's probably what happens to most of the, you know, the most sublime batches will get set aside for customers who care enough to go through that kind of selection process. The only time I've experienced that type of variability was between various manufacturers of Roquefort, where I had mm-hmm. one that came from one particular maker. And it, that was the first cheese I had. It was from De Laurenti too. It's the first yeah. cheese I had where I got blue cheese. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. The salt crystals and it was beautiful. And then I had yeah. a bunch of other Roqueforts that or from a different maker that I'm just like chasing that feeling forever. I've never found yeah, it. Chasing the dragon. Chasing yeah. the dragon. Where is it? <laughs> Where is this cheese? So like, that's the only variability I've encountered, but it's between makers and not within vintage. And maybe I need to have like a vertical taste test of various cheeses. Like you do that with like Gouda or, or other things too, that I've seen that have like six month, 12 month, 18 month, three year. But I need yeah. to, I need to develop yeah. my palate in that way. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun exercise. 
Well, come to Wisconsin. Come to Wisconsin, eat that, eat that cheese. Yeah. What about the Rush Creek Reserve? This one is, is much different, which, I don't, by the way, I want to back up one second. The Pleasant Ridge Reserve, what type of commonly known cheese would you say this is closest to? Would you just say like a French or Swiss Alpine cheese? Yeah, we use the phrase Alpine style cheese. Alpine and style. the people in the cheese industry, they get it right away. It's, it's not that, you know, common parlance. So I would say like a Gruyere. Like Greer. What about the Rush Creek Reserve, which is certainly a much softer? Is it is it washed rind too? Yes. Is, and it's also wrapped in birch leaves. Yeah, spruce bark. Spruce and bark. There we go. Got it. It grows that kind of white mottled mold, so it looks like a birch. It looks exactly like a birch tree, but huh. um, yeah, that is the other side of the coin on our farm. So you know, the summer, spring, summer, fall, while the cows are grazing we make Pleasant Ridge, which is, and I could talk about that if later, you know, Pleasant Ridge, an aged cheese like this is always going to show off the character of grass-fed milk more and better. But mm-hmm. coming into the, the late fall, our cows start eating hay. Pasture growth slows down. You've got to supplement with hay. That changes the, milk, the character of the milk quite a bit. So the milk gets a lot richer, heavier in fat. Um, is it like grass-fed and grass-finished versus like corn-fed beef? Is it kind of like that? In some ways. Some ways, yes. it's like a fattier content of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it and the fact that they're eating more hay and less pasture, I think, diminishes the inherent flavor complexity of the milk. So the diets are so much simpler. Yes, it would. It it makes delicious milk, but it wouldn't make as interesting of an aged cheese. Mm. But that extra texture, the fat you get that time of year makes for a wonderful soft cheese. So it's the same kind of paradigm, looking at milk coming off of one particular farm during one part of the year and asking yourself, what's the destiny of this milk? What is the character of this milk and the the best way to express it? Well, and on pasture, it's aged cheese and on hay, it's soft cheese. So we, for about two months every fall, we make um, Rush Creek Reserve, this little soft cheese. And like our, you know, grazed milk going into an alpine style cheese, soft cheese being made off of hay takes a page out of the old world cheese making calendar. This is, we didn't write the book on this either. Uh, and when I was young and making the rounds as an apprentice, I worked in Eastern France making Comté and they then in the in the fall and winter make Vacheron Montdor and Rush Creek is based on Vacheron Montdor. That cheese is not imported into this country. So you don't see it that often, but, and it's, it's done there for the same reasons we do it. Character of the milk changes, style of cheese should change along with it. So small soft cheese wrapped in spruce bark, the bark's there to hold together the, that, little pillow of cheese otherwise it's so soft it would sort of puddle out is it not imported because it's raw and it's under 60 days aged is that what it is correct uh that, that rule just breaks my heart i'm sure yours too uh no it makes it's i think i'm making my <laughs> you, you you rent seek off of it and you're happy for no, it. i wish we could eat french mondor um so we have to age rush creek 60 days which is was an interesting exercise but figuring out how to do that. Uh, so anyway, we make it in the fall, sell it all over the holidays. So we sell it November, December, 
uh, and then that's it until it comes out again following November. So Pleasant Ridge has seasonal production, but we sell it year round. Rush Creek is made seasonally and sold seasonally. It's just sort of a, a big burst on the calendar. And then I went today, to man, I tried to pick up another wheel so I could, uh, <laughs> or whatever you call those little rounds. Yeah. yeah. Have some in front of me. And sadly, the cheesemonger informed me this was not possible. Yes. I'll have to wait till the next uh, <laughs> Christmas time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Are there other cheeses that you're making or are those just the two mainstays? That's it. Just the two. Wow. No, you don't feel the pressure to introduce a number of other options? I do. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, people ask all the time. It's, you know, and it's very American of us, isn't it? Like, what's new? What's new? What's new? Like, you wouldn't go to a French or the old Italian cheesemaker. What's new? You know, you yeah, that would... make what you make. That's so funny. But I wouldn't have associated that, that, but yeah, I would never do I that. I get off on novelty just like everybody else. I just scratch that itch in other parts of my life, like, mm-hmm. you know, playing a band, travel, like do other stuff to, you know, varieties, the spice of life. Uh, I think you, you know, yeah, we could make 12 different cheeses and we'd probably just water them all down into mediocrity just through scattered attention span and I like uh, the simplicity of it. Yeah, I respect the focus too. That is a very American desire. I'm sure you've had people been like, this is great. If I invest here, you could expand to 5,000 cows and do this. And you're like, you don't really get what we do here, do you? This is, you'd lose the thing. You, you kill the thing that you're trying to save by yeah, doing We do that here though. I mean, you know. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll do it. I, we, uh, we need to expand our building. So, you know, like I said, winter time, we have it's kind of step back and talk about big picture stuff. So we spent all morning talking about, you know, we need to put up a new building. Uh, we're just out of space, cave space to age cheese. All of a sudden you spend a bunch of money. You've got to grow to justify the, you know, new investment and uh, off to the races. Yeah. You're in that cycle once you start. Yeah. Yeah, the treadmill. I was hoping uh, you'd try your hand at a blue, but it sounds like maybe that's too much to expect. Do you, do you like blues or I feel like there's a little bit of a how disgusting can you make it chauvinism uh, to the genre, but I, I very much love it. <laughs> I love them. I when I think I love Stilton. I would love to make a a Stilton. Have you had the, I never had to say, is it Stichelton or Stichelton? Yeah, Stichelton. Yep. Stichelton. Yep. That yep. the raw milk still that that is was also one of the early cheeses where we had Dan Saladino on who wrote the Eating to Extinction book. He wrote a mm-hmm. bunch about it and turned me on to it. That was one of the first cheeses I had where I was like, oh, this uh, is sublime art right magic. here. Oh yeah. And that is a good example. I mean, the the two Stiltons I hold in the highest regard are Stitchelton and, and then Colston Bassett Stilton, which is pasteurized and is consistently just beautiful stitchel raw milk (laughs) yeah it moves when you get a sublime batch of stitchel then it's the best oh man i gotta order some i'll have to give the colson bassett a a try i see that at the grocery store and that's that's a quite common one but i feel like after reading uh dan's book i was a little bit prejudiced against the 
more mainstream Stiltons. Like I know the, I know the real stuff, man. Don't come at me with this non stitchels and cheese. Yeah. It sounds like that's wrong though. And there's a good one out of Vermont, Bailey Hazen blue. Yeah. Yeah. I see that one around. Too. I think I might've bought that one once, but I'll revisit it if you are a fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a neighbor of ours here who makes a much drier blue cheese, very subtle blue veining. It's called Dunbarton blue. He makes it like a cheddar. So it's dry and flaky and pressed like a cheddar, but it's, he, you know, introduces a blue mold to it. That's a really cool cheese. I don't know who in Seattle would have it. We got to talk about climate change. I'm happy to just talk about cheese forever for its own sake, because cheese is a beautiful thing and it deserves it. <laughs> and the entire show and then some could just be about our, our love of cheese um, and me stealing all of your knowledge while I have you on the line. But I am curious how you're thinking about climate change, if and how it's affected any of your operations, any of your future planning has been impacted by it. You can start us any way you want, but how are you thinking about climate? Yeah, we are thinking about it more and more. Six, five, six, seven years ago, I did not think much about it at all, mm-hmm. other than you know what we'd read in the general newspaper and, and think about the issue at large. But in terms of like, what happens on our farm, you know, we are seeing warmer, wetter, you know, more extreme storms. And we're pretty exposed in that regard as as a business because our cows live outside year round, which is really unusual for dairy cows in this part of the country. So we dry them off this time of year, but they stay outside. And it's not the cold that's hard on our cows. It's really these wet mud seasons on, on the shoulders of of winter, November and April, mud seasons have gotten a lot worse. And so we're preparing to, you know, build a a barn just to get the cows off the fields in in the mud season. That was something that really wasn't on our radar, um, you know, six, seven years ago. So for us, you know, it's a big investment in the grand scheme of things, putting up a barn is, is not a huge deal, but it represents, you know, a shift in our priorities, something that we never thought we'd have to spend money on. Um, I never would have guessed that either. And I suspect most people listening would not have expected having to buy another barn or get a barn going because of mud. And we also want the roof for the summers because they're hotter and more humid. And our cows who are grazing, you know, they're outside 365 days a year. These hotter, more humid summers are hard on them. We'd like a place to get them up into the shade midday in the summer so, you know, you compare this to most modern dairy farms where cows are kept in barns 24-7. And I, th- I think, you know, those farms are susceptible to climate change by, uh, you know, the impact on feed production. They're making all their feed out in the fields, big machines, bringing them into the barns, feeding the cows in a controlled environment, and then hauling all the manure out, spreading it on the fields. Our style of farming is kind of opposite. Our cows are out in the fields all year, harvesting their own feed, spreading their own manure. So they're out in the weather. It's a long way of saying uh, our cows are feeling, feel the weather every day. And as that weather is changing, it's uh, causing new sort of stress points for them. So that's, you know, that's the main difference kind of on the ground. One step more removed sort of larger business strategy. We're becoming much more conscious of uh, like all people in businesses, I think of our 
carbon impact, our footprint as a business, and starting to ask ourselves, what is our carbon footprint, first of all? How can we improve it? What sort of expectations are going to be laid upon us by our customers, government, et cetera, in the future? And that one has been a challenge. You know, uh, we've not really found the carbon modeling for our business in which we feel confident in the data. And looking at Nori's website, actually, I, I'm going to follow through with you know, some of the businesses uh, you're linked with that you know provide that kind of third-party certification of carbon sequestration. And we're trying to educate ourselves a lot more on that. My instinct, and maybe, you know, maybe it's just self-serving, is that a farm like ours is all perennial pasture, rotational grazing. That's a big carbon sink, I think. All that I think that we have a lot going for us in that regard. But of course, cows living this kind of lifestyle are lower in production. They don't make as much milk as the big modern Holstein kept in a barn year-round. So does that mean that the methane produced by our cows per pound of milk is actually greater than wow. the big dairies with confinement. That's an interesting question. Counterintuitive, but possible. Yeah. And then you start to look at like cheese transportation. You know, we send cheese out to your neighborhood, Seattle, one pallet at a time. So a semi pulls into our farm. We load a refrigerated trailer. We load a pallet on it goes back to a warehouse in um, central Wisconsin. They fill an entire truck, drive it to Seattle. You know, moving one pallet at a time around compared to moving full truckloads around. So, you know, these big cheese factories in Wisconsin that I talked about who make as much in a day as we make in a year, they sell cheese by the truckload, not by the pallet. How much more carbon footprint per pound does our cheese have moving around, you know, per pallet quantities as opposed to full truck. Questions like that, we're, <laughs> those are the kind of things that we're kind of trying to wrap our heads around. I respect the hell out of the way that you're approaching that. I think small farmers sometimes have uh, an attitude of being so superior ecologically and otherwise for those reasons. And it's funny to hear those questions pointed back at yourself too, where you're like, Wow, are we the baddies? As the as the famous sketch and joke goes. Yeah. I think one way you could let yourself off the hook too is even if like per capita or per pound of cheese you were higher, their volume is so much higher and their waste streams are also way different. If you're only looking at carbon, that's one thing too, but what are they doing with all of that effluence that's just like going into the waterways? And I'm sure yours is your cycling is surely much cleaner, but I respect the way that you're engaging in those questions. Yeah, I don't think small producers should get a free pass uh, at all. And then there's a third way kind of that we're looking at it, which really made me uh, think more about what, what Nori is doing. We are working together with some other pasture-based uh, dairy farms in Wisconsin to, we're in the early stages of, of looking at bundling our sort of carbon credits as a group of farms that could then enter the market and sell those carbon credits. Because our little 500 acre farm, I mean, yes, we, we don't really sequester enough carbon to be attractive to 
an investment group, 500 acres. But what if we went to the market with uh, 50,000 acres of perennial pasture? Then maybe it becomes interesting to, to players in the market. And I'm not on the leading edge of that, but the, the guy who is here in Wisconsin has just gotten some grant money together. And we have one of the first, there are maybe three or four of these prototype they're called pasture tracker. It's a, we drag it around our fields behind a four wheeler and a beaming sonar down on the fields. And essentially we're spending all season tracking the amount of carbon being sequestered in the soil. I, I won't go into the math of how it does that, but it's sort of early stages of us trying to quantify that with the ultimately the goal of I think going to the to the carbon market with it, and maybe also the goal of creating some kind of certification of you know these products are are produced on a net zero farm. Or I mean, I I can't. I'm not sure we are net zero. Trying to at least quantify it and see what it means in the market. That's pretty interesting, and I can imagine it's challenging to get the measurement of, of carbon correct. I feel like we mostly work with people doing row cropping and it's it's simpler in, in modeling in some ways, but also the science is still quite complex. There's new papers coming out all the time, some of which make it really hard to know what even is happening in the first place. Soil is surprisingly complicated <laughs> um, is the lesson here for everyone. Yeah, and I don't pretend to. I, I my impression is the same as as yours that every time I kind of take a look around at the literature again, which I do maybe once or twice a year, it's like wow, they still don't understand it. I think what the pasture tracker is doing, it's measuring um, the pasture growth, mm. and it's using calculations that assume that there's a proportionate or a certain proportion of carbon being sequestered in the soil relative to what's being grown above the soil. The two quantities are related. Is it going to be accurate? I, I don't know. Nori is primarily working with row crops and like big, big acreage, like in the Dakotas and that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think we've had plenty of conversations with with different types of agricultural practitioners. Gosh, is that the most formal way to yeah, designate right. that group of people? <laughs> but yeah, even doing one thing well has been super hard in a long running challenge and introducing additional complexity to it has uh, been something that we've, we've waited on a little bit. But yeah, we are having lots of, of thoughts and thinking. I'm sure if you're listening, we'll do a show about Nori's evolving thoughts on soil and carbon soon. My reticence to speak so directly on that is mostly because once I open it, I won't be able to shut up for the next 50 minutes. And I think we should probably be trying to conclude this before then, but we can definitely talk more. Are the prices of your inputs changing too? I think that's a pretty conventional farmer gripe with climate and inflation and other macroeconomic factors. Yes. I spent this morning, you know, going over last year's numbers and, you know, trying to, to, just climb inside the the books and, and figure out what happened last year. And um, everything went up. The wages to employees, grain we feed the cows, propane, diesel, 
I, you know, we, we ship cheese around the country via FedEx. I came in Monday morning, two days ago, January 2nd, flipped open the computer, started printing out FedEx labels. That went up another 7%. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we feel squeezed. And, you know, uh, maybe the natural response or one response is for us to turn around and raise our prices, which we've been reluctant to do. We, we've done it in one or two cases. You know, cheese sold on our website went up this last year, but we've not yet raised the price, price of Pleasant Ridge. And that gets to be a complicated calculation, you know, but I think we'll have to. We're feeling the, the squeeze, I think, like everybody else. Do your corporate buyers, I guess the the grocery stores in particular, do they have a lot of influence over how you're changing prices or are you locked into contracts with them? I'm not. And um, somebody as small as we are, I think doesn't often get into that. Now we sell to, you know, food service distributors who are, there's some sizable companies and they have, we do have agreements. Like we, we have to give them 90 days notice, et cetera. But of course, they could refuse to buy it if they think it's too expensive after a price increase. That's really the, the leverage they have. Or buy less of it, of course. Um, is there any other way that you've been impacted or thinking? Oh, one other thing, too, that Liz brought up is the potential of different types of animals becoming more dominant in cheese making, especially hardier yeah. animals like goats. Do you see that as a viable possibility? I have to to give that some more thought. Wisconsin has the most of all three types of dairy farms of any state in the country, goats, cows, and sheep. I mean, if if her line of thinking is that goats and sheep uh, are less resource intensive and maybe less susceptible to some climate issues, I think in theory that plays. I don't see a lot of cow dairies in Wisconsin selling their cows and buying goats and sheep so I, i'm not sure that's happening yet but might be a little farther off yeah and you know wisconsin is still a great place to um, milk cows I mean, it hasn't gotten any easier certainly not as, as things are getting more expensive but uh you know we're we have the trend here is you know towards fewer and larger farms like the trend everywhere mm. uh, but it's there are still you know six seven thousand family dairy farms in Wisconsin. Seems like the best way to avoid getting sucked into that is to avoid the commodity system where you can. Is that broadly accurate? It seems to the trend is either to go big, couple, you know, several thousand cows, and really try to take advantage of some economies of scale, or do something specialized like we do, value added. I think one trend I could speak to, and I don't have statistics on it, but it's been happening for several years now. The big dairies in California selling cows and, and moving to the Midwest simply because we have water. I guess that um, makes sense. I think Point Reyes is the only one I could name. Are there others that have, they haven't moved, have they? They'd have to change the name. No, no, no. And they have a, long history, a beautiful farm there. I, I, long may they run, but uh, I, I can't, uh, there are a couple of families around here I could think of who came out in the last 10 years. Um, California. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
there just isn't enough. I mean, my understanding, there just isn't enough water there. We've got it here. But you look at the national cow numbers and cow herds are growing in places like Texas, New Mexico, places where there isn't a lot of water anyway. So I'm really not sure. Those have always struck me as goatish environments. That's not an adjective. I'm going to make it one. But it's like arid, kind of rocky. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, and, you know, cows need a lot of water. 40, 50 gallons a day they'll drink each. I just don't see it and uh, how they're doing it in those arid climates. But I feel like there's a lot of distortionary influences within agriculture, too. I wonder if it's an issue of subsidies or something else is happening or water is maybe priced for ag much cheaper than normal rates. Like, I who can say on those things, but maybe it'll eventually catch up and people will adapt, assuming they're not misled by policy. I don't know. I can think of two other trends in that regard that are interesting. One is that, you know, land prices are going up and it's being coming a more attractive asset for investors. And I've read that that's particularly the case the last few years because the government showed, it, again, it's willing to bail out farmers. With, with subsidies. Trump in particular went big that election year. He dumped like $45 billion of subsidies into the farm economy. So I think Bill Gates is now the largest landowner in, in the country. So I think the investment class is looking at farmland and how much it's appreciated and the fact that the renters who are farming that land but don't own it are going to be bailed out by the government probably when times get tough. So anyway, I think that increased investment as, as driven land values up, that's worrisome for somebody in my position. Hmm. Uh, the other interesting trend, and I, I think there's going to be increased scrutiny over farming's impact on uh, water quality, climate as well, but, you know, water quality. And um, I think, you know, perennial pasture, rotational grazing has a lot to offer on both of those fronts. But that discussion is getting pretty serious here in Wisconsin. Um, are there too many cows on too few acres? You know, what, what are the risks of doing that? And You're in the Dells, right? That's like the hilly southwestern portion. Is that right? The Driftless corner Dr- of the state. Oh, yeah. Driftless. Okay. Driftless. Yeah. The Dells is a, a area about 40, 50 miles of here from here, the kind of south central part of the state. Nice. So we're in the hills, yeah, to the west of that. Got it. Yeah. Is the water quality even bad as a consumer? Like, have you had problems either with your home drinking water or is it with the water that goes to the animals? Have you noticed anything or is it not reached that scale yet? No, we have wonderful water here. I mean, we're lucky. Uh, we're limestone, um, really good drinking water. But there are some other parts of our state where um, they've started testing private wells and, you know, countywide testing three, four hundred wells and they're finding more and more problems. And they're at the stage now where they're trying to trace it, you know, as the, the problem coming from cows, they're finding more, you know, human contamination than everybody expected shoddy old septic systems, that kind of thing. Uh, So I think it's early stages, but everybody's saying that our county just ran a series of these tests and uh, the numbers are 
yeah, everybody turns their head and says, what, why, why are 20% of the wells above the legal limit for, you know, E. coli or nitrate? And so people are going to start demanding answers and farmers for the most part, you know, we're kind of a, we get a lot of slack in this country, but I think increasingly and appropriately, the public is, is going to demand that, you know, your, your private business can't threaten public resources. And I mean, that's the same for industrial manufacturers, but it needs to be the same for farmers as well. And I think that's coming. But, you know, being a steward of natural resources and, and farmers aren't out to pollute, of course, but I think we, we've, so many of us have gotten a free pass for so long, but I think, you know, the, as, as people get to better information and, um, farmers come under the spotlight, they're going to have to be some tough questions to answer. And so I think what that means for me and for any farmer is, uh, you know, we're going to have to work harder at showing the public how positive we can be when it comes to, yes, feeding people, but also like stewards of natural resources and uh, maybe carbon sinks and, and so on. You know, the risk is that all cows are going to be vilified. And you certainly are already seeing that in some of the plant-based media coverage, just throwing around reckless statistics. You know, 20% of global carbon emissions comes from animal agriculture or just made up numbers. But, you know, I wondered if you polled 14-year-old kids around the country now and said, are cows good for the environment or bad? I mean, I'm worried that we're teaching people cows are bad and that is not necessarily the case. So while I do see increased heat on, on farms, animal farms for how they impact the environment, I think we got to be careful to not treat all farms the same. And, and those people doing positive things need to get that out there. Yeah. Well, uh, Andy, as we start wrapping up here, where can people enjoy your cheese? It's your chance to send send hopeful future customers to, to your door. Yeah. Cue the sales pitch. Yeah. <laughs> your listeners, I'm sure, are far flung. So the simplest one-line answer is to, to buy right from us on our website, uplandscheese.com. Uh, we send it all over the country right to your house, uh, right from our farm. But if you're in a city and near an independent cheese shop, that is the best place to buy cheese. And you'll find our cheese. We're not a big producer. We're not in every store in the country, but we are in uh, the best cheese shops in the cities from coast to coast. And if you don't have an independent cheese shop, but you have access to a grocery store, we're in a lot of Whole Foods all over the country. For Seattle, you've got some, you know, local chains of like PCC and places like that. So you can find us. We're out there, uh, and you can always uh, send me a line at uplandscheese.com. Go to our website. Ask us where to find our cheese. We're we're pretty easy to talk to. I'm on there right now, and I see that there's an extra aged Pleasant Ridge Reserve that yeah. exists, which I 
will soon be ordering myself. I yeah. Think. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to send you some. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Well, thanks for being here with us, Andy. Thanks for answering so many questions about cheese in general and your operations and climate change. Of course, I enjoyed it, Ross. Uh, nice to talk to somebody uh, interesting and smart from across the country. Yeah, talking cheese. Yeah, thank you again. And thanks for listening too. Thanks for being a part of the show. Please give us a great rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Share this with a friend. Go eat some cheese. Go buy some Pleasant Ridge Reserve. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.